welcome back to the International Chronicles of the Chester Fritz Professors. This episode returns to the travels of Jim Galgadet. If you didn't have a chance to listen to the first story, The Soviet Files, it's available through Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as the chronicles.chesterfritz.com. When I wrote this story, I was thinking about something that a friend told me about working for months to get access to 16th century English documents, only to find that the documents were in an utterly unintelligible version of English. I started with that idea, but the story took on a life of its own, and it was a lot of fun to write. I hope you enjoy the Royal Archives. Jim pressed his palm into bleary eyes and shuffled along with the stream of travelers. The throng was pushing along a wide hallway of glass and steel, growing as corridors merged, and new travelers joined the procession aiming toward passport control. Up ahead, Jim caught sight of an open bench with a blue handicap sign on it, and he stumbled forward at an angle, fighting through the press to reach the bench. He collapsed into it, the morning sunlight slashing through the glass window across from him, and he had to squint and turn away. The window behind the bench looked out over the tarmac, where dozens of planes were positioned with no obvious order. Jim shrugged his backpack off and fumbled about for a pair of sunglasses. His search successful, Jim let himself slump into the bench. The Valium had helped him to manage the fitful and intermittent sleep on the plane. But in between, he had finished a book of puzzles and had nearly finished a fifth of Glenn Levitt, acquired at the duty-free store in Minneapolis. Deep planing had been a gauntlet he had managed with ill grace. Jim set the backpack on the floor, withdrew the bottle. He worked the cork stopper free and tipped it up for a mouthful of scotch. As he lowered the bottle, a cluster of flight attendants came into view. He recognized a couple of the women from his flight. They stared at him in disgust as they passed, and Jim suddenly took another swig from the bottle. There was perhaps only one or two shots of whiskey left, and that was all for the better as it would make his bag lighter. Jim leaned his head back and recalled how he had come to be marooned on a bench in Heathrow Airport. He had not intended to travel anymore. He had rented a cabin for the month of June at Lake of the Woods on the Minnesota-Canadian border. He had managed six days sitting in a boat, drinking light beer, and occasionally catching walleye when Elizabeth Dunley had arrived at his cabin late in the evening. He would have ignored her knock, but she had been able to see him through the window, semi-passed out on the couch. Jim corrected himself. He had, as point of fact, ignored her knock, and she had simply let herself in. She had made small talk for a time before telling him that the Chester Fritz professors needed him on a plane to London on the 8th. Jim had sworn at Elizabeth and rolled over on the couch, indicating his refusal with the crude body language of a sullen child. Elizabeth had sat for a time before using her walker to rise. She had told him she would be back in the morning and had shuffled out. Morning had found Jim on the same couch when Elizabeth returned, pushing her walker across the beer-can-cluttered floor. She had sat in the chair, poked Jim in the ribs with her walker until he had woken. Her round face had been flushed red with annoyance, and she had criticized him for failing to bring back anything from his Ohio trip. In hindsight, Jim could see that she had been working him over, so that he would be more inclined to accept a chance to redeem himself. At the time, Jim had been hungover, and had struggled to process the spoken word as more than painful, percussive bursts. When Elizabeth's hectoring had become more than he could handle, Jim had rolled himself off the couch and retreated to the kitchen, where the coffee pot was located. Elizabeth had continued explaining that Abe Belcom had come across an intriguing reference 
In one of John Winthrop's letters, Jim had sarcastically asked if it was the elder or the younger Winthrop. Elizabeth had dryly clarified that both Winthrops were implicated, but it was the younger who had written the letter. The document in question was an early draft of a letter sent in advance of the younger's 1662 trip to England. It was a letter of introduction directed at the newly formed Royal Society, in which the younger Winthrop described a book procured by his father in 1608 from an ailing and impoverished occultist John Dee. The book, which Dee himself had translated, was derived from a Greek text that was itself based on an earlier Arabic text from the 10th century. Jim had listened to the explanation only casually, and had grumped a so what as he handed a cup of coffee to Elizabeth. He had returned to the kitchen to pour himself a cup. When Jim had thumped himself onto the couch, he had noticed the tremble in Elizabeth's hand as she carefully placed her mug on the coffee table. The story had come tumbling out as she had told of the disaster that had come to Frank Zilka's Arabian expedition. Elizabeth had provided assurances that Frank was in Germany at an army hospital and would probably live, but she had also hammered that the work was not done. Frank had been tracking a book written by Abdul al-Hazrad of Sana. His next destination was to have been Yemen, but Belcom's letter seemed more promising. If Winthrop had passed even a partial third-hand translation of al-Hazrad's text to the Royal Society, it was something they had to investigate. Jim had sat for a time drinking his Bailey's-laced coffee, rolling things around in his mind, thinking about those 14 days he had spent on the barricade with Frank. Memories had bubbled up, partial scenes pressed together into impressions. There was an image of a small, toadish professor sitting in the shade of the Chesterfords library with a shotgun across his lap. There was the frantic 72 hours of sandbagging about the library to fortify it against the imminent flood and the coming invasion. There was the image of Frank Zilka holding the library entrance against the first wave of those fish-faced frog creatures. There was the feel of the shovel in his hand as he bludgeoned a creature to the face. The smell of it. The spray of gore. When Jim had finally pushed the memories aside, he'd agreed to go to London. Time dragged, but the waiting area was more than comfortable. The leather armchair Jim had settled himself into had slowly molded itself to his body, which, in combination with an exceptional library, had made the passing hours quite bearable. The library was unusual in that in select areas it could boast true depth, but it was laughable in breadth. It was a library formed from the private collections of great scholars, rather than the standard patterns of curation produced by professional librarians. The oddity of the library's collection put Jim in mind of a colleague from history who had bragged that his book was found in the greatest libraries in the world. Jim had pointed out that good libraries are like the bibliographic equivalent of strip mines, while lesser libraries acquire books through a process not unlike panning for gold. The metaphor, while apt, was not appreciated by his colleague. There were basic gaps in this particular collection. Nowhere could be found standard reference books. The fiction section was virtually non-existent, and the social sciences were underwhelming. Yet Jim had flipped through the mathematical treatises from some of the greatest minds of their age. Newton, Townsend, the German Felix Klein, the Swissman Euler, as well as the statistician Fisher and his bitter rival Pearson. Jim located a bound collection of papers on solar flares by Leonard Colhane and passed his time while the archivist searched for the book John Winthrop Jr. had gifted the Royal Society. Upon finishing a theoretical paper he had read twenty years earlier in graduate school, Jim checked his watch. The time was such that he was left debating if he should plan to supper in central London or take the underground to Hammersmith, where his hotel was located. 
It was half past four, and he resigned himself to an evening trolling the mall in search of a restaurant. Jim was mindful that prices would be significantly cheaper in Hammersmith, but his frugal impulses lost out to the urgency of his rapidly dropping blood sugar. He had gone on a walk about earlier in the day, looking for vending machines, with no luck. Carlton House Terrace was undergoing significant renovations, with entire wings closed off to regular foot traffic. If there were vending machines, they were not located in the library wing of the Royal Society's quarters. From a staff-only door, a familiar archivist emerged. Jim set down the collection of essays when he heard the clopping approach of the woman's cork-wedged heels. The archivist was stylish in a way Jim did not typically associate with librarians. Her Bowden ensemble featured yellow okra with earth-tone accents that complemented her South Asian features. The woman informed Jim that his request for access to the text would require a letter of introduction from either a Royal Society fellow or the Chancellor of a university in the United Kingdom before it could be considered. This perturbed Jim in no small degree, but he managed to secure an assurance that upon receipt of a letter of introduction, he would be given access to the manuscript. Jim had pressed the archivist as to the need for such obstructive protocols and was informed that the text was restricted due to an interdiction imposed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Juxon. Jim grumbled about the bureaucratic protocols, but there was nothing to be done, and he left the Royal Society with nothing beyond the assurance that the archives would act with haste as soon as he could provide satisfactory paperwork. Consequently, Jim left Carlton House in a foul mood. He marched sullenly down the mall, determined to find a seedy bar where he could secure something local and greasy. The exact dish, be it fish and chips or bangers and mash, was less important than the ability to pair well with the small keg of beer he intended to imbibe. It was little over a block from Carlton House Terrace that Jim realized he had left his backpack tucked behind the leather chair in the archives. He checked his watch and swore. He had only 15 minutes before the archives closed to the public. Hustling back toward Carlton House, Jim found himself irrationally irritated at the sidewalks that had packed in tight behind him, with people seeking escape from the city center. The crowd was comprised of an eclectic mix of Londoners dressed in a range of attire, running from stylish three-piece suits made damp and limp by the summer heat to baggy street clothes. Dawdling tourists were part of the swarm, but mostly it seemed to be locals intent on homes in the outer suburbs. Jim managed to retrieve his backpack at 4.55 p.m. and turned back to search for a pub. Before, his exploration had been motivated by low blood sugar and the desire to get outstandingly drunk, but now he also craved the cool climate of a basement pub. He was flushed from the hustled return to the Royal Society, and a shirt clung to him in the June heat. It was in scanning for a suitable watering hole that Jim registered a familiar figure. At first it had simply been an oddity, a young man in a t-shirt and cargo pants. The t-shirt read binary, as easy as 011011. The shirt had stuck in Jim's mind when he first noticed it. As he passed the man a second time, Jim's subconscious had registered the anomaly and pulled the biological equivalent of the fire alarm. A flood of adrenaline ramped up Jim's pulse. Air that had previously felt sticky and hot was momentarily cold. The rational part of his mind tried to assert calm. It was nothing. To prove the point, Jim had stopped for a long time in front of a shop window. When he had turned to go, he checked a side mirror of a car parked along the street. The man with the t-shirt was still there just as he had been when Jim had started his Potomkin window shopping. Jim swore and mentally clocked the faces of everyone around him. Was it just one person following him? Were there more? Was he being boxed? 
Was he about to be abducted? Was it just coincidence? Jim tried to keep his mind clear. He made his way toward Piccadilly Circus Station as though he were headed back to Hammersmith. He kept a steady pace for six blocks, then took the escalator down to the underground. Upon stepping off the escalator, Jim took a U-turn for the upward-bound escalator, pushing past people as subtly as he could. As he passed the man with the t-shirt still on the down escalator, Jim tried not to make eye contact, but he caught the look of alarm on the man's face. The man began pushing himself down the escalator, and Jim responded by storming up the moving steps, hauling his bulk in as much of a run as he could manage. The escalator trick had bought him maybe 30 seconds. It wasn't much, but it was enough to clear the station and turn a corner. Jim broke for a side street, lumbering forward a good 20 steps before he realized he had made a wrong move. The side street went on uninterrupted for some time. There would be no easy opportunity for him to dodge into another alleyway or clip off into an even more obscure avenue. Panic surged, and Jim forced himself to swallow back the surge of bile exploding from his stomach. His throat was raw and swollen where capillaries in his esophagus had exploded under the unexpected exertion. Jim doubled back a dozen steps and slipped into a boutique woman's clothing shop. The store windows offered no real shelter. Jim swore a second misstep. He was on the brink of panic taking hold of him. When the clerk asked if she could help him, Jim managed to croak out a question about a back exit. The woman looked him up and down, no doubt taking in his beet red face, his sweat-soaked dress shirt, and his obvious American accent. Graciously, the woman led Jim through a back storage room and to a door that opened into a side alley. Jim thanked the woman, waited for a short time behind a dumpster, and then strolled out onto Swallow Street and flagged down a cab. It wasn't until the cab merged onto the M25 that Jim felt the fight-or-flight instinct retract its hooks that had embedded themselves in his mind. Jim set the phone receiver back on the hook and fumbled his international calling card back into his wallet. It was 2 a.m. back in the United States. He hadn't really expected anyone to answer. Indeed, he had called office numbers knowing that no one would pick up. He had left messages on answering machines of several of his colleagues, notifying them of his intention to re-enter Carlton House Terrace for a second time. Across the street, the pink plaster building stood fenced with wrought iron. The access points were all sided with columns of the same salmon pink. Jim had circled the building several times over the past three days as he memorized the exits, the streets, the likely places to double back unseen. He had chatted up a couple of the restauranteurs and had, he hoped, laid the groundwork for a nearby bolt hole in every direction. He had been lucky with his last escape. He had no intention of relying upon luck should he be followed a second time. Jim took a deep breath, pushed open the door to the telephone booth. His heart pounded and he waited for the street light and then he was moving. Jim scanned the parking lot around Carlton House Terrace. It was largely empty. Jim's step faltered for a moment as he realized that he didn't know if that was a good sign or a bad sign. It was probably just a function of the Royal Society's public hours having just started, but he was learning on the fly, which was a risky way to learn. The building was difficult to navigate. Corridors that had previously been open had been closed off for construction. Jim took a back stairway up to the third floor where he could access the archives. The archivist had registered a moment of shock upon his arrival. Jim reminded himself not to read over much into confusion. He had, after all, told her that he would be arriving the following afternoon to view the necrotic manuscript. After a flustered moment and inspection of paperwork, Jim was given access to a private reading room. He was allowed to take the moleskin notebook and a pencil, but he was forced to relinquish his fanny pack with its digital camera, 
passport, and London map. He had been allowed to keep his watch, which was for the best as he decided to limit his reading to an hour. He could return if needed, but more than an hour seemed to tempt fate. Jim's hands trembled as he opened the red leather cover of the book. The gold leaf was flaking, and the archivist's insistence that he wear gloves was clearly a prudent precaution. Jim looked up at the closed-circuit camera, fully aware that he was being watched. The first page was emblazoned with a strange symbol, not unlike that used by the artist formerly known as Prince. It was an amalgam of a dotted circle, a crescent, a cross, and a twin hump. The next page confirmed the book's connection to the alchemical mystic, John Dee. The English scholar had named himself as the book's translator. Jim readied a pencil and turned the next page. He stared. Jim turned another page. He stared. He tried again. The result was the same. Jim began flipping frantically, each page delivering the same cosmic joke. He looked up at the closed-circuit camera and wondered if the archivist was laughing at him. She must be. How could she not? Jim snarled silently and gritted his teeth. He checked his watch and began flipping frantically, looking for something, no, anything. It wasn't that the pages were empty, for they were clearly not. It wasn't that it was a foreign language, or it had the feel of English. It was that the script, the spacing, a million other factors rendered the text utterly unreadable. Jim had seen optical illusions where numbers were substituted for letters and sentences, and that all that was needed was to allow the brain a moment to adjust. His subconscious, however, was scarce help in imposing meaning on the strange Roman letters. John D. had employed a strange variant of the illuminator's art. Nearly every letter was decorated such that the effect was an artistic jumble that twisted the eye away from actual words. The uniqueness of each symbol defied mental categorization, rendering each page a unique cryptographic puzzle. Jim checked his watch. He had lost a full thirty minutes to these strangely crafted letters, and had recorded nothing of any coherence. He had marked down the symbol at the start of the book in the hope that it would function as a cipher of some kind. Beyond that, he had just done his best to transcribe a couple of pages of text. The result was a meaningless jumble of letters, crude renderings of illuminated designs. Jim set a pencil down in disgust and slipped the small notebook into his shirt pocket. Jim swore, slamming the book closed for effect. At this point, it was meaningless to continue trying to transcribe the text. He didn't know what was important and what wasn't. He didn't know if his attempt at copying passages was a useful exercise. On the other hand, maximizing his escape time was important and was a better use of the remaining 20 minutes. Jim peeled his gloves off and then made for the exit of the reading room. The archivist tried to initiate a conversation about the beauty of the illumination, but he cut the effort short with a polite rebuff as he could manage before departing through a door cordoned off for construction. Jim quick-stepped his way down the steps to the main floor, opting for the north exit rather than the south door from which he had entered. There was a ten-meter space between the building and the wrought iron fence. The plan was to bolt across the parking lot, into Waterloo Gardens, and use the cover of the woods to make north and west toward Pall Mall. About three steps into the parking lot, Jim realized his mistake. A white van was parked parallel to the wrought iron fence. The van was running. The driver wasn't even trying to disguise his interest in Jim. Jim began turning back toward the Royal Academy when he felt arms on him. The van punched forward, blocking the entrance and the side door slid open. 
Jim was being rushed toward the waiting van. He made himself go limp as a last attempt at resistance. His knee slammed into the pavement stone, tearing through fabric and skin. There was a moment of adjustment while the two abductors shifted handholds to bear Jim's full weight, but it was no more than an instant. Jim fought as best he could as they hurled him into the van. He realized too late that he should have screamed. He expected to be followed. He had been ready to shake a tail. He simply hadn't considered a 9am kidnapping to be a viable or even likely scenario. Jim began his belated yell for help and felt a knee press into his back, compressing his chest and preventing him from refilling his lungs. The door to the van slammed shut. A bag was pushed over his head. A moment later, the knee was off his chest and he was slipping toward unconsciousness. Ether, Jim thought, as the blackness closed in. The ceiling was a cracked and mildew-stained plaster. Jim stayed still, unsure if he should move, letting his mind work out his location. His memory spun, but nothing clicked into position. He tried to keep his breath steady and drew on his other senses. It was quiet. It was cool. It was dim. It was musty. He was on a mattress. It was lumpy. It was scratchy. It was stale with the smell of mothballs. Jim was about to risk a glance to the side when a voice greeted him. We expected you to be up a bit earlier, Dr. Galgadet. The voice was female. British? Maybe Scottish? Jim couldn't really tell. The words were drawled in a way that he identified as educated, confident, and entitled. Jim rolled his head to the side and noted the woman's dark business suit, short cropped red hair. Her face was long and broad, an extension of her figure more generally. She somehow managed to combine a stocky frame with a feminine grace. Jim realized that the combination worked because of her height. The woman was easily over six feet tall, even without the three-inch heels she wore. The overall effect was professional and polished, but not conventionally attractive. Jim tried to estimate the woman's age and came up with 40 on the low end and 60 on the high end. After a moment of reflection, he decided to assume a low 40s out of politeness. Where am I? Jim managed to croak out as he pushed himself up. His voice was strangely raw, like he had been lecturing for days without the benefit of water or rest. We moved you to Burlington House for your debriefing, she said with an expression that suggested a smile. Jim noted when she stopped talking, her lips, red with a garish lipstick, instantly returned to a tight, practiced smile that communicated friendliness without any wasted warmth. In case you are wondering, the debriefing went exceptionally well, and we are in negotiations to arrange for your release. Jim rolled himself over, finding his shoulders excessively tender. I don't have anything to tell you, he rasped, with the indignant fury characteristic of Americans abroad. But you damn well owe me an explanation. The woman's smile stayed, but her eyes flashed something else. Amusement? Annoyance? You're twice wrong, Dr. Galgadet. We are not the enemies of you or of Chester Fritz. Whiplashed by her comment, Jim's jaw momentarily dropped open before he snapped it shut. He considered asking how she could have known about Chester Fritz, but stopped himself, fearing her reference had been a ruse to elicit information from him. And yet his gawking silence was itself an affirmation of her comment. After an awkward and obvious delay, Jim responded with a profession of ignorance. The woman clucked her tongue. Dr. Galgadet, she said as if patronizing a slow child. We have efficient methods of interrogation. You have mercifully no memory of the questioning. 
But believe me when I say we were as satisfied as we were surprised by the answers you gave. Jim flushed red. I won't tell you anything, he snapped. The woman's smile was tight, but her lips thinning. You are acting like a slow child, Dr. Galgadet. There's no need for you to feel bad. You did as well as any man might when put to the rack. Jim's eyes went wide and with alarm, and he touched his shoulder, feeling the tender muscles. Not that kind of rack, the woman said, reading his reaction. It's just a casual term we use for our methods. Jim nodded, uncertain how to interpret her assurance. His body felt strangely exhausted. His muscles felt weary and used up. His mind was starting to orient to his new situation. You have no right to hold me, Jim responded. A thin smile appeared again. Well... Our legal authority for holding you is rooted in a 1660 royal decree. While it's been a number of years since we've had to draw on this authority to its full extent, I assure you that we are well within our rights. You keep saying we. The woman's smile carried a touch of actual warmth for the first time. Well, Dr. Galgadet, I am Dr. Karen Poole, previously of Her Majesty's Navy, then Chatham House, and most recently full-time affiliate of the D Society. Jim shook his head. He had some sense of Chatham House as a British think tank, but the details were sketchy. I've never heard of the D Society. Well, I should hope not, Thum declared. We wouldn't be a very good secret society if you had heard of us. She gave a stiff smile to mark the statement as a joke. You may think of us as the British equivalent of your Chesterford's professors, except that we are much older and far more competent. Jim considered taking umbrage at the woman's dig, but considering that he was in a prison cell, it seemed pointless to argue about relative organizational competence. You mentioned my release, Jim said, pivoting the conversation back to his irregular detention. It will still be some time, Dr. Galgadet, the woman responded, but you said you were in negotiations. Who are you negotiating with, and what's the holdup? We are negotiating with your university. A woman, a, a dean or some such. The narrowing of Jim's eyes seemed to amuse the woman. Negotiations proceeded very positively. Indeed, we're more or less finished crafting a letter of understanding that will serve as the foundation for long-term cooperation between our two organizations. From what I've heard, this Dunley woman is ferocious. Our negotiator, however, has been asked to stall. Why? Jim asked the narrowing of his eyes morphing into a deep furrow of his brow. Because you are in no condition to leave us, Dr. Galgadet. You need to get sober, or you will be dead by the end of the summer. Jim shrugged indifferently at the woman's prophecy. We would prefer that not to happen. Jim shrugged again. The woman stared at him for a time before standing and walking to the door. She tapped on it, and an exterior bolt was thrown, allowing the door to be drawn open. Do you fence, Dr. Galgadet? she asked. Jim shook his head as he looked past her into the black. Uniformed guards waited on either side of the door. There was nothing beyond but the far hallway of stone. You will start this afternoon, then, the woman nodded to Jim, and then passed instructions to the guards. Two o'clock, in the East Ballroom. The door was closed. The bolt slid back into place. Jim extended a thin pipe out in front of him. His right arm was almost fully extended. His left arm was held back, elbow bent at a right angle, serving as a counterweight to the steel in his right hand. He set his stance, feet apart, shifting one back, 
Hips dropped to lower his center of gravity. Jim slid forward, pipe extended outward, each step carefully placed to maintain balance and preserve the springing action of his hips. After ten steps, Jim reached the cell wall and reversed, backpedaling with a practice precision. Weeks of repetition had trained his muscle memory so that the footwork exercises happened naturally. The exercises were also useful mentally. He had his 39th session with Karen Poole in several hours, and while Jim didn't want to overly tire himself out before their session, he had an important decision to make. He found that he thought better drilling with a sword than he did pacing his cell or languishing in his cot. The first session had been an utter embarrassment. Dr. Poole had not even bothered to don protective equipment and had spent nearly two hours demonstrating the lethality of the rapier by delivering sharp stabs across his body that left walnut-sized purple bruises. Jim's attempt at defense had been ineffective and his attempts at offense had mostly involved swinging wildly with the thin blade. The humiliation of that first encounter had ended with Jim slumped, sweating and exhausted in a corner. As Karen had slipped back into her heels, she had explained that the rapier should not be mistaken for a broadsword. The steel was edged for aesthetic purposes, but no amount of force would make it lethal. The rapier was nothing more than a pointy, reliable stick that should be used as such. She had shown him several dozen exercises to isolate wrist movements, improve footwork, and strengthen critical muscles. It took ten more sessions before Karen bothered to don protective equipment, although Jim was no closer to striking her than he had been on the first day. Still, they had found a rhythm to their exercises, which allowed for conversation as they sparred. Jim had made a point to listen more than he talked. He had learned a great deal about the D Society, and perhaps more importantly, had learned about the book he had been sent to recover. He had asked Karen if the book was simply a trap. Her response had begun with stabbing him in the thigh. The D Society closely monitored access to Winthrop's book, but it was less that the book contained anything dangerous than that anyone who knew enough to seek the book out had already delved too deep into the secrets better left unexplored. Two sessions later, Jim had asked if any attempt had been made to decode the Winthrop book. Karen had stabbed him in the shoulder and then slapped the blade across his face, splitting skin and raising a large welt. Jim had protested that the rapier was a stabbing weapon, but the pain in his face was its own rebuttal. When they had stopped for water, Karen shared that the book had almost certainly been encoded by John Dee when he had translated it from Greek into English, but the Dee Society and its various front organizations had been unable to make sense of the cipher for nearly 400 years. It had been seven sessions later that Jim had managed to land his first strike on Karen. Subsequently, she had agreed to give him notes he had made during the 30 minutes he had spent reviewing the book. The notes, along with a box of chalk, had been a useful distraction. Jim went from drilling 12 hours a day in his cell with a bit of pipe as a makeshift rapier to an alternating an hour working on the decipher and an hour conducting fencing drills. The 37th session with Karen had been sadistic, and afterward Jim had cracked the cipher. During their session, Jim had managed to land a pair of sequential strikes, which had precipitated a near-fatal blitz. The ballroom lacked any sort of air conditioning, and after three hours in the July heat, suffering blow after blow, he had blacked out. The guards had dragged him back to his cell, laying him on his cot. He had rolled himself toward the door as they left. When the cell door closed, he could see a full page from the book chalked onto the wall. As his vision blurred in and out of focus, Dee's cipher had fallen away, and he had understood the mechanism of encoding. The book's title came into focus, The Book of Dead Names, The Necronomicon.
Jim had vomited and passed out shortly afterward. Yet the solution to the cipher had lodged itself in his mind, and he woke the next morning with a clear sense of how to decode the book. Jim tossed the pipe onto the bed and balled his right hand into a fist. He set his fist against the wall and began a sequence of isolated movements, rolling his fist up the wall while the rest of his arm remained motionless. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. A beginning of an idea, a beginning of a plan. Jim had spent almost a month with the D Society, and in that time Karen had held almost total power over him. Stockholm Syndrome had broken him fairly quickly. He knew from the start what was happening to him, but he couldn't stop it. Within a week he had rationalized away the daily bludgeoning with a rapier as a normal and appropriate form of training, yet now he had a bargaining chip, and that tiny bit of power brought into focus how much his confinement chafed. The archivist shook as she poured the tea. Jim wondered if the tremor was medical or psychological or simply professional. To his right sat a legal pad. In front of him were various drafting tools, the compass, the protractor, a flat, soft, leaded pencil, and a rubber eraser. To his left sat a 400-year-old book, the jewel of the Royal Society's collection that was at long last yielding up its secrets. Jim waited for the archivist to leave before returning to his work. It had been a condition of his translation that no one observe him work. The cameras had been removed from the viewing room. He had personally burned all of his drafting sketches at the end of the day. His one lever was his ability to decode decipher, and he wasn't about to give it up. His accommodations had shifted from a musty cell in the basement of the dungeon level of Burlington House to a hotel two blocks from Carlton House Terrace. He was still confined by an ankle monitor and an armed escort, but it was an objective improvement. Jim sipped at the tea and checked his watch. He had roughly two more hours before he would be escorted to Burlington House for the three-hour fencing session. Afterward, he would be returned to Haymarket for a shower before dinner out with one or more of the D Society members. Jim shifted his ruler to follow the trajectory of the thickest line of the illuminated lettering. Age had caused the ink in the book to bleed, so identifying the appropriate brush stroke was often a matter of guesswork. Over the past week, Jim had developed the ability to work with the text as a drafting problem rather than a literary one. He consciously avoided working letters into words, or words into sentences, or sentences into meaning. He worked the book like an illiterate medieval monk, transcribing without understanding. During the first couple of days of work on the translation, he had tried to understand the book, to memorize its content, to hold on to its secrets. The result of that effort was a drunken night out that had ended around 3 a.m., with a pair of D-Society thugs dragging him back to his hotel room. It had been after that incident that he had accepted the ankle monitor. Yet Jim found himself deeply conflicted. He had earned himself a small bit of comfort in agreeing to decode the Necronomicon, but every page he supplied to the D-Society increased the likelihood that they would reverse-engineer the solution to decipher. His instinct for self-preservation told him to go at it slowly, but there was another reason to drag out the translation. The rites described in the book were barbaric beyond all description. What he had read in those first few days had terrified him more than the attack on the Chester Fritz Library or the scientific notes of the Soviet blood mages. Jim sipped at his tea and noted another letter into the notebook. He had raised his concern about the barbarous rituals of the D-Society. Karen 
and an older man named Michael had confirmed that he was correct to be alarmed by the content, but should not mistake secret knowledge with lost or forgotten knowledge. The rites described in the text were well known to dark cults around the world. Jim had excused himself and vomited his dinner into a single small bathroom at the thought of those demonic rituals being carried out. When he finally made his way back through the restaurant to where Karen and Michael waited, he had asked how they could know about rites described in a book that had been indecipherable for 400 years. The answer had upset him greatly. The D Society had collected second-hand accounts from the encyclopedic volume known as Unaussprechlichen Kulten. Jim had laughed hysterically at that. Karen and Michael had not seemed to understand the joke, but then again their sanity was not being shredded daily to provide confirmation for something recorded elsewhere. Michael had explained that there had only been a handful of printings of the book, and the last had been lost during the Second World War. Karen had suggested that Jim meet Dominique Jackson, who was the world's foremost expert on Unaussprechlichen Kulten. Michael had mused that Dominique was usually in Paris this time of year, and the D Society could arrange such a meeting when Jim had finished his translation. Karen had tut-tutted and suggested that perhaps Jim could go on holiday in Paris when Tim Fetterstead arrived later that week. After all, she had continued, Jim was hardly a flight risk. He would return to finish the decoding of the Necronomicon, because that was the only way his organization would secure a copy. Jim had prickled at how easily they talked about his servitude. He sipped his Diet Coke and had kept his expression blank. His mind had already been made up. He would never finish decoding that horrid book. Karen and Michael had been trading restaurant recommendations for Paris when Jim had indicated that he would like to meet Dominique Jackson as soon as possible. He had offered a bland justification. Knowing more about the likely content of the Necronomicon would speed his decoding of Dee's book. Both Karen and Michael had nodded approvingly. Jim had smiled and thought of his wife. Jim circled the lounge area of the Calais-bound ferry, looking for an empty table. The tables were all full, but there was a spot at the bar, which he took semi-reluctantly. Jim set his backpack in front of his chair and leaned his sword cane against the underside of the bar. An order for Diet Coke and mozzarella sticks later, Jim felt a remarkable sense of freedom. After nearly two months in captivity, the open water was nearly intoxicating. It spoke of possibilities and the unknown. The press of passengers on the ferry, however, was disorienting. Jim had spent so much time in isolation that the buzz of human voices seemed violent. The cacophony of languages and accents delivered in barks and shouts and laughs and hails was abrasive. Jim was not well-traveled, but he assumed he would be able to make his way from Calais to Paris by rail. From there, he had names and addresses. The stack of francs he had acquired at the money-changing station on the ferry would be more than enough for a week in Paris. If he needed more time, then matters were significantly more complicated than Karen had described. A platter of flat, undercooked mozzarella sticks were slid in front of him by the bartender. Jim wrinkled his nose at the greasy, pale breading before asking for ketchup. The ketchup, Heinz, came in a glass bottle, which Jim considered somewhat novel. He tapped out a decent portion and dipped a mozzarella stick. The taste was all wrong. The ketchup was too sweet and lacked the salty bite that he relied upon to accent greasy food. Jim sighed. It was a stupid thing to focus on. He had subsisted off of porridge 
and rancid sausage for nearly six weeks. Ketchup, even bad ketchup, was a luxury. And yet Jim felt a sharp pang of homesickness. Jim sighed deeply as he tried to distract himself from the tears welling in his eyes. He blinked repeatedly and scanned the dining area. There were two types of people, he realized. Those minding their own business, and those minding the business of others. Admittedly, Jim was currently in the latter category, but he also noted two men and a woman that were also watching the room. On some level, Jim was aware of how paranoid it was to assume that three people with wandering eyes in a crowded room meant that he was being watched. And yet his experience with the D Society had permanently lowered his threshold for paranoid delusions. Jim shoved the mozzarella stick into his mouth with one hand and located his sword with the other. He could feel his blood pressure drop as his hand closed on the silver handle of the cane. It was comforting to feel the silver and steel and wood. Karen had given him the cane as a going away gift. She told him he hadn't yet earned the right to it, but given the circumstances, rules could be relaxed. Jim had accepted the gift graciously, hardly taking umbrage at the obvious slight. He could hardly dispute the events were spinning out of control. Everything was in chaos, and the D Society was understandably scared. The attack on the Royal Archives had been brazen and had come without warning. The attack had involved eight attackers, disguised as a construction crew. They had pushed their way into the archives and forced the staff to retrieve the Necronomicon. The head archivist had complied, but had stalled long enough for the police to arrive and surround Carlton House. The attackers were well prepared for this possibility and used explosives to breach a basement wall, allowing escape into the sewer system. The casualty count had been mercifully low. The initial strike on the archive used stun grenades. While the head archivist had endured a terrifying 15 minutes at gunpoint, she had no more injuries than the other visitors and staff who had been subdued with zip ties. The police had stormed the building in time to locate and defuse an incendiary bomb, which would have torched the whole of the archives in a monstrously fatal inferno. The attack had occurred three days ago. Karen had met with him at Haymarket Hotel that morning to tell him that the police had Carlton House locked down. It did not escape either of them that the theft of the book meant Jim's efforts would never see completion. Jim was reminded of the monkey's paw story, in which wishes were granted but through some dark twist of fate. Jim felt mostly confident that Dee's cipher was sufficiently complex and irregular to render the book useless. Jim had worried that he would end up back in a cell at Burlington House, but apparently he had earned a sufficient level of trust that Karen made no attempt to restrict his autonomy. Alternatively, Tim Fetterstead was en route to London, and Jim was no longer needed as a hostage. The third possibility was that the attack had left the D Society in chaos, and keeping Jim out of local pubs was suddenly much lower on their list of priorities. From what Jim had gleaned, the D Society members were of two minds about the attack. One faction argued that such an attack reflected a sophistication and surveillance that could only be marshaled by state actors, which was code for the Russian FSB. The other faction argued that such an attack was more likely the work of a death cult. The chemical attack on the Tokyo subway system several years earlier had demonstrated the paramilitary danger posed by doomsday groups. It was to this later hypothesis that Karen Poole subscribed. Unfortunately, if the cult attack hypothesis proved correct, there were no clues that would help to identify which occult sect might have now in its possession Dee's copy of the dread Necronomicon. Jim looked out at the blue-green waters of the channel and shivered. There was freedom and possibility in the crossing, yet there were so many unknowns, 
and there didn't seem to be answers anywhere in the world. All he had learned was that something was very wrong, and because he had no idea what was happening, he had no idea if he was getting clear of it, or if he was heading into the maw. As mentioned at the start, this story took on a life of its own. Episode 5, The Academy Julian, brings together a mix of occult history, Lovecraftian themes, the Yellow Mythos, and launches a new and dangerous phase of Jim Galgadet's journey. While I'm really excited to share this story, there are other stories to tell before we can find out what awaits Jim Galgadet on the far side of the English Channel. <laughs>